Good to have you guys here. I know today is going to be a little bit lighter in attendance because of the four-day weekend. Uh, we had to scramble a little bit as far as our elders uh, to serve communion. I know a lot of people are, are gone. Uh, and some people are gone because of sickness as well. Uh, so we'll be a little bit lean today. Um, but the material is robust nevertheless. And looking forward to getting us into this next section on uh, Christian liberalism, J. Gresham Machen's uh, foundational book, um, 100 years ago, and this uh, topic is on the Bible. Uh, I'll begin us with a word of prayer, and then we'll watch uh, Stephen Nichols, his lesson, and then we'll, uh, I, have, I gave, you, gave you an outline, and we'll uh, go through some of that, ask some questions, and just facilitate a conversation, considering the material. So. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, we do love you. We do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, for um, the love with which you have loved us. You have given us your Son. You have given us your Spirit. And we are unworthy servants. We thank you, Lord, for lavishing your love upon us. We thank you for this day, this Lord's Day, in which we can be taught good things about your Word. And later, we can worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray, Lord, for those who are unable to attend uh, on account of sickness, for that you would heal them speedily, cause their bodies to recover, um, that they would know the good shepherd and the good physician. We also pray, Lord, for those who are not here because of vacation, that their time would be refreshing, and that you would um, identify a place for them to worship you uh, with other saints, their children that you have, and um, return them to us safely, we pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time to study, uh, study the Word, study the topic of the Bible, I pray that through it we would have a greater appreciation of, uh, of your Word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, episodes. <laughs> Next episode. Alright, yeah. We'll be talking about the Bible, okay? So, there's a lot of questions that perhaps swirl about in your head. Um, and I put in the outline there before you, for the most part, a, a summary of the material, but then also, uh, in preparation for this lesson, I, I did read his chapter on it, and there's stuff in here that I want to draw out that he that Dr. Nichols, because of time, doesn't. And if you haven't read Christian Liberalism, do it. Not right now, because you're in a class, but do it. You could get it done by the end of this year. You can make it a, a goal. Or read it next year. Uh, it's a really good book. It's one I've read three times. Two because I had to, and then one because I wanted to. Uh, it's probably a book that I think we should read maybe every three to five years. It's just that important. Um, so, uh, first here we have this, these interrelated doctrines of the Bible, revelation, inspiration, and inerrancy. And uh, just talking briefly here about the first one, just a, again a, a reminder here that revelation is God's uh, self-disclosure. Okay, He discloses himself through 
nature and through the word of the, uh, the Bible. Now, Dr. Nichols does uh, have another, you guys know what the GR and the SR stand for? The GR stands for? General, General Revelation, okay, and SR, special. And he makes a comment um, that GR, or General Revelation, could also be natural revelation, right? Or he says, sometimes called natural theology. And there he's actually um, taking two ideas and treating them synonymously. There's actually a difference between natural revelation and natural theology. Natural revelation is just another word for general revelation. It's God's revelation of himself through nature. Psalm 19, Psalm 119, Romans 1, and on and on. Natural theology is man's attempt at understanding God through nature. Did you notice a difference between what I just said, natural revelation and natural theology? Somebody draw out the difference between natural revelation and natural theology. Well, there's a, an understanding. One's a one's a one's a one's a uh, explanation from God in the form of pictures, and then the other is our interpretation of those pictures. Okay, good. One is the clear explanation given by God, and the other is an attempted at understanding that. So. They're not equally authoritative, are they? Does, does, does man understand God's revelation as clearly as God has given it? No. And one of the beautiful things that, I know John, you love him, Cornelius Van Til, one of the things he wrote in an essay on natural revelation is that natural revelation has all of the characteristics, all the attributes that special revelation has. And so when we talk about general, special revelation, we talk about the Bible as uh, inspired, as inerrant, as um, authoritative, um, as uh, you know, perfect. We talk about the Bible in this way, but until also says that's exactly uh, how we ought to describe God's natural revelation. The problem is not in God's disclosing himself through nature. The problem is in our own feeble attempts at understanding that revelation. So there are a lot of natural theologies, a lot of different attempts at understanding. So uh, inspiration, what's the doctrine of inspiration? And you can refer back to the sermon I preached, Reformed Elite Theology, if you want to, or 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. What does it mean when we say that the Bible is inspired? When we say it's breathed out, we get it out. That means that it cannot contain anything false. Okay. Yes, and Dr. Nichols says the connection between inspiration and inerrancy. You know, if it is truly inspired, then it, it follows that it's inerrant. It's without error. What else? I'm really saying it's directly from God. It's as a breath from a person that you get breathed on, you know they're there. Yeah. So the, the source is divine. It's not human. Yeah, it's clear. The Greek word, theo... Uh, yeah, Yeah, yeah. Uh, literally, God 
words of God. So it's not the apostles saying, hey, I think this is what God is saying, or yes. this is pretty close. God is literally speaking the Bible. So the written words that we have are directly from God, which is a big difference, you know, when we think about the apostles or Moses writing, uh, hey, this is, you know, from the Lord in an indirect way. Uh, mm -hmm. So... We talk about God superintending, the Spirit superintending the process, uh, as, or as Peter says, that they, these authors were carried along by the Spirit. And so men spoke, men wrote, given their own circumstances, their circumstances uh, to uh, the audience that Peter wrote to in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, those are different from you know, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Right? They're different circumstances. Paul is a different writer from Peter. John's a different writer from those guys. Uh, Luke writes differently. You know, Moses, and, and all the rest. But all of it is that every single word that God wanted to be there is there. And so we have um, those two adjectives that describe the biblical view of inspiration, verbal and plenary. Verbal, the very words. So we're not talking just thoughts, paraphrases. And that's why it's important, and I'm not dissing paraphrase translations, they have their utility. But when you want to have a, when you're seeking a translation, you want something that's close to the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek as possible. Because you want, in English, or French, whatever, the closest to the very words of God. <coughs> and then plenary from the Latin plenus, as we know, right? It means full. Okay, so fuller, all, all of the words, not just some of the words. So yes, even Obadiah, or even 3 John, which we forget about, and uh, Philemon, which we pass over at times, even those, uh, and yes, Leviticus, you know, Second Chronicles, you know, those texts that we barely look at, we probably pass through quickly as we're doing our uh, Bible reading in a year. All of it, all 66 books are breathed out by God. Profitable. So they're, they're there for a reason. Now, um, on 76, this book, uh, this is the 100th anniversary edition. And just, again, just, just look at this thing. Okay. This is good. This is <laughs> good. So he says um, what it is and what it isn't, what inspiration is, what it isn't. Uh, so as a matter of fact, the doctrine of plenary inspiration does not deny the individuality of biblical writers. It does not ignore their use of ordinary means for acquiring information. It does not involve any lack of interest in the historical situations which gave rise to biblical books. What it does deny is the presence of error in the Bible. It supposes that the Holy Spirit so informed the minds of the biblical writers that they were kept from falling into the errors that mar all other books. The Bible might contain an account of a genuine revelation of God and yet not contain a true account. But according to the doctrine of inspiration, the account is, as a matter of fact, a true account. The Bible is an infallible rule of faith and practice. Which is a good summary of what we mean when we say a verbal plenary inspiration. This is not mechanical theory, not a dictation theory. God used real men real time, real circumstances, to communicate exactly what he wanted. 
Now, the three doctrines, revelation, inspiration, and inerrancy, uh, I wish, well, and I know Dr. Nichols doesn't include this because uh, Mason doesn't include it, but there's a fourth doctrine that relates to Scripture that's pretty important. So you can have all three of those. God reveals, okay, uh, that, that he has revealed his word to his people, that it's breathed out by him, it's inspired, and because it comes from him, it is inerrant. You can have all that. But without this next doctrine, those previous three are pretty much useless. It's doctrine of preservation. God has to preserve his word for us. I mean, you can imagine a situation that God gives us his very words, and then man just messes it up, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that was the word of God, and oh, Second Peter is out you know, down the drain. Oh, no. What happened? Okay. But we take comfort in the fact that God preserves his word. He's not going to go speaking um, anthropologically or anthropomorphically here. He's not going to go through all the trouble to uh, have his word inspired and, and written down and then just lost. Okay? He's going to preserve his word because he cares that every age, every generation has exactly his word when he's bringing, uh, when he's in his providence, bringing generation after generation. Okay, so this doesn't mean that Moses had all sixty-six books at the time of his life, but it has. But it does say that he had everything that God wanted him to have, and the people had everything that God wanted them to have in the time that they were. Uh, and now, with the canon being closed, two thousand years plus, uh, we have all of God's word because. Man has preserved, or God has preserved his word for us. Now, I want to address uh, something that Machen does in the book, which is a, a riveting question, okay? He says this on 77. It must be admitted that there are many Christians who do not accept the doctrine of plenary inspiration, that doctrine is denied not only by liberal opponents of Christianity, but also by many true Christian men. So now he's, he's having a word for, for us who, who love God's word. He says, There are many Christian men in the modern church who find in the origin of Christianity no mere product of evolution, but a real entrance of the creative power of God, who depend for their salvation, not at all upon their own efforts to lead the Christ life, but upon the atoning blood of Christ. So he's saying these are true Christians. Okay? There are many men in the modern church who thus accept the central message of the Bible and yet believe that the message has come to us merely on the authority of trustworthy witnesses unaided in their literary work by any supernatural guidance of the Spirit of God. There are many who believe that the Bible is right at the central point in its account of the redeeming work of Christ and yet believe that it contains many errors. <coughs> Such men are not really liberals, but Christians, because they have accepted as true the message upon which Christianity depends. A great gulf separates them from those who reject the supernatural act of God with which Christianity stands or falls. So you know what he's saying there is, they're not liberals, they're real Christians, they believe the central message of the gospel, the central message of Christ, Christ alone, like you know, faith, like, you know, grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, 
they got that message and they wholeheartedly are devoted to it, but they believe that the Bible does contain many errors. And so, one question that uh, Machen addresses, something that uh, we perhaps tend to think about, is I have some, some questions here on the handout. Can true Christians deny this doctrine, the doctrine of inerrancy, and still be saved? In other words, are people saved by their affirmation of the inerrancy of the Bible? Can you be a true Christian and reject inerrancy? You heard Machen. He thinks you can. I think it's a pretty slippery slope. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, comment on, on the slipperiness of the slope. Yeah, so, I mean, not that it stands or falls, but then once you start questioning inerrancy, well, one, what would be errant? Right. Uh, what parts would be errant? Because... You know, there's significant doctrines uh, relating to salvation, essence of Christianity, but then it also has a trickling, cascading effect. And Aaron, well, is it plenary? You know, is it verbal? And then all the way back up, you know, to these other doctrines of pre preservation. So it has. It's not just inerrancy in itself. It has a wider aperture than that. And so. Uh, I think it would be dependent, and I probably wouldn't wholesale agree with Machen here. Uh, I'm not finished reading yeah. other words he has. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think it would be dependent, but that's... Yeah. Okay. I think you're, you're getting into a subjectivity then, right? Just because you say it's the truth, and I say it's inerrant, you can't tell me that I'm wrong. You can't... There's what, on what ground... If I believe... If, if we both believe that there's some inerrancy, mm -hmm. that, there, that, there's, that there's an error, right? <clears throat> but we disagree as to what the error is, mm -hmm. right? How do you then say that I'm right, you're wrong, you're right, I'm wrong? Because and then how do you stop? Where do you stop with these errors? Yeah, who, become, who becomes a judge? Yeah, who, who's the authority? Uh, who's the authority? So it's subjective. And so Machen goes on to say, people have found morally objectionable certain words that Paul has written. Okay. How dare he say something like that about women? They're supposed to be silent. Well, the church silent. is going through this modern, this modern church is going through this right now with homosexuality. Of course. With LGBTQ issues. Right? Yes, so you hear people saying, well, Jesus never said a word about homosexuality, but that's, that was Paul. Okay. And so now you're pitting Jesus against Paul. And so Machen goes on and talks about that. Uh, people find... Pauline teachings, morally objectionable, and Jesus, or Machen saying, you can't have that both ways. You can't have Jesus and not Paul. You gotta have them, you gotta have them both. <clears throat> so, are we saved by the belief that God's word is inerrant? Are we saved by it? Yeah, yeah. yeah are we saved by that? No. 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 Can, you, can you not believe? Can you believe that the Bible does contain errors and still trust in Christ alone for salvation? Not logically. With a modicum of ignorance. With a modicum of ignorance, okay. <laughs> so, right, so as opposed to like a, a willful a rejection, you know, here are all the errors in the Bible and 
Yeah, I think the willful rejection, I was going to make a comment about your original question because if he is, as a, a lawyer or as a scholar or anyone that claims to have some sort of kind of analysis behind their statement, when you say you're rejecting, what you then get cross-examined if you say, I reject this truth. Well, then someone asks you, do you really reject that truth? And then they can walk you through your actual belief. So I would argue that if you actually walk a tangible example of a an ignorant Catholic, a a saved Catholic who attend, or I would say Catholic is they go to a Catholic mass and they think they're Catholic, and then you walk them through their theology and you ask those questions: Do you really reject justification by faith alone, for example? Well, then when you start asking questions and you start to examine their heart by a conversation and questioning, you, you might find that they actually don't reject that doctrine. Sure. They just claim to believe it. So then to say that a true, genuine rejection of the inerrancy and heartfelt rejection, I would say is, doesn't equate with Christianity. Okay. That's what I would say. Jen, you said it's illogical. Yeah. Go ahead. Speak more. Well, because if one part is Aaron, then the, the central doctrines to which you're clinging for your salvation might as well be inerrant too. Yeah. How do you, how do you distinguish, like the priest said, how do you distinguish which are? Where you start and where you stop. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then again, you're appointing yourself as judge. Right. You know, and then if we go into the personal beauty of Scripture, which means that it's of itself, it's enough revealing for salvation. Uh, you know, you look at Romans 10, how will they know unless mm -hmm. they've heard? And if we think about the whole counsel of God, if you preach any part of scripture, it's the counsel of God and it's true, the Spirit might use that to bring someone to salvation. But if you're, you know, any part of scripture would be inerrant, then how might it bring someone to salvation? So yeah, I mean, the logical aspect, I think scripture is pretty clear about this as well. So. Yeah, Machen goes on to say, this is just the next paragraph, after opening the, opening the idea that you can be a true Christian and not affirm inerrancy. He says, it is another question, however, whether the mediating view of the Bible, which is thus maintained, is logically tenable. The trouble being that our Lord himself seems to have held the high view of the Bible, which is here being rejected. Like if, you, if you consider Jesus' own words, he's got a full bibliology. He's got a robust belief in the doctrine of revelation, in inspiration, in inerrancy, in infallibility, in preservation. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to say, I love Jesus, I trust in him for, his, for salvation, but I don't fully agree with him that all these words <laughs> are true words. Uh, that his word contains errors. And Machen's saying this. It's untenable. It's, it's unreasonable. It's it, it's illogical to have you know to try to hold both. Um, but it is possible to be a true Christian, he says, and not affirm inerrancy. Uh, but you're just going to find yourself you know, in all kinds of problems, and you're going to be picking and choosing. Well, I don't like what Paul says here. Uh, I like what Jesus says over here. Do I really need to read you know, this obscure Old Testament book? But remember, Jesus says that all of uh, 
the Bible speaks of him. The law and the prophets, they testify to him. Well, um, sorry, I just want to say too, you know, anyone in this position then would, Christ came that we might live life to the full, to the abundance. And when you live in, a, in this idea that parts of it are true, you're not able to fully live as Christ has rescued you. So it's like getting this gift, you know, it's Ferrari, but you're truncated to, you know, 10 miles an hour uh, because, you know, so, I mean, it's a poor analogy, but you're not able to live fully in the joy that the Lord has given because you're half believing to some extent, so. I think that's going to come too about that, like, maybe what do we allow for just someone that might be ignorant of the things they don't know in Scripture and sanctifying our Scripture to further inform them in the Christian walk? So I think that also has to be yeah. considered, and we can't, any of us can fully understand Scripture, you right. know, they've been studying it for decades, much less someone who maybe really hasn't been exposed yes. or under good teaching. They still believe the Gospel, but they may not understand the whole of the yeah, so we are thankful, for instance, for the, the, our, the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. But we're also thankful that uh, we're not saved by our articulation of and our complete understanding of this doctrine. There are many people who <coughs> don't have a, a firm grasp on the doctrine of justification and yet say, are saved by it, and saved by Christ. So, yeah, people, we need to be patient with people. Uh, we need to teach them. People, there's so many spiritually mature people who are in heaven. And as, uh, as we confessed and as we affirmed in, a, in the evening uh, a week or two ago, is that even our own obedience is just a small beginning. It's just imperfection. It's just so minuscule. I think we can apply that also to our own knowledge. We are all, at most, unworthy servants. And we are all imperfect. We are all, like you say, spiritually immature by the time the Lord takes us home. Now, what Nichols does, I like, is he, he takes Machen's book and applies it to new kids on the block, one of which being postmodernism. You know, postmodernism says, you know, there's the... Uh, there are no meta-narratives. There's, there, there's no single meta-narrative or overarching story, worldview, that is the truth. There are just many narratives. There are just other stories about just many worldviews, okay? Which I think you can see the contradiction in that is the account, the, uh, the meta-narrative is that there are no meta-narratives. The, the overarching story is that there is no overarching story that explains all of life. Uh, it's just, you just have a moment to think about what people are saying. Like, there is no truth. Okay, is that statement true? <laughs> yes. No. Oh, you got me. <laughs> um, is there something, however, that we can say about... Uh, the, the whole my truth thing, you know, Nichols says, uh, this is a hyper-relativism, and sometimes we see it with, with my truth. My truth versus your truth. Is there any sense in which we can actually say my truth? Well, 
that's what a loser is. Explain. Uh, the law of the time was that you believed what the Catholic Church, when the Pope was the direct representative, the messenger of God, he basically communed with God, and you had to pray to these things. And Luther's in going back and saying, I think that there's some something going on here. I think that this is not true. Right? From the Catholic mm -hmm. Bible, the doctrine, right? Yeah. So, and he said, uh, it's sort of the Reformation. And that's 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 exactly why they had the Reformation, because people disagree as to the doctrines that were being put out by the church, imposed by man, not backed up by scripture. So, yes. There's a, there's a, but, but in the guise of scripture, Mormonism is a, an example of that. Sure. I think there's other sects, cults out there that do those same things. And so you have to use, go back to scripture to say this is a wrongful interpretation of said scripture. Yeah, I think a sympathetic part for a young person will lead you to try to understand why they would say something like hashtag my truth. Yeah. To explain their understanding of their rationale for doing something. So if it's right for me, it's it's right for me. If it's right for you, it's kind of like a to each their own ideology that's pervasive in modern postmodernism, our our liberal culture around a secular culture. All to each their own, and it, it goes back to that that thesis that there's multiple narratives that are that, that can be congruent if you just study them hard enough and with a diplomatic uh, mindset that everybody can get along. So I think in a sympathetic way, you could approach that my truth idea as a diplomatic make peace. It's a peacemaking idea. I think at the heart of some people's idea. If you take it to the polarization of like philosophically, you you disavow absolute truth and you say there is competing narratives and that is true, then you're back to how hard do you believe that? Mm -hmm. Because if you firmly believe that, then you're dead damning wrong. But if you just in with a sympathetic approach to their understanding of that, I would try to ask. Why do you, what do you actually believe? And then the, the, my, the little t truth could be more relative, relevant to like a situation than yes. But if you're talking about big t truth, like I don't think you yeah. can't get around it. You can't say it's relative. Otherwise, you are being a secularist. I think the, the yeah, I do. I would argue that there is a sentiment about what's being said is is genuine, but the fact of the matter, when you use words and descriptions of those words, you can't redefine them. So if we get agreement on the terms, then yes, mm -hmm. one is absolutely incorrect because uh, it, it contradicts absolute truth. But if what you're saying is hashtag my truth is uh, my decision, 
then okay, that can be arguable that that is a fair decision for you to make in your autonomy. Mm -hmm. But I think you got to get to the definition of both before you judge if it's right. Yeah, it's good to understand before you uh, carry carry on with the conversation. Well, um, so much stuff I also wanted to ask about, but let me just end in uh, with how Machen finishes the chapter there. It's on the bottom of your outline. The Bible to the Christian is not a burdensome law, but the very Magna Carta of Christian liberty. It is no wonder, then, that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Liberalism is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. That's right. Our gracious God, we do thank you for the time we had this morning, just scratching the surface of uh, the great topic of what is the Bible and uh, the truthfulness of your message in Bible. We are thankful, God, that you have given us your word in the Bible. Uh, it is inspired, it is inerrant, it is infallible, it is preserved, it is trustworthy and authoritative. And we are thankful that you have given it to us to guide us into all truth. And we thank you, Lord, that you have also given us the opportunity to worship you in, uh, in just a little bit. Pray that we would be united with one another in our praise and our affirmation and uh, our commitment to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.